I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we take up one of the most hotly contested constitutional cases of the Supreme Court term, Fisher versus the University of Texas. On December 9th, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the Fisher case, which is a landmark challenge to affirmative action at Texas's flagship public university. Uh, listeners may remember that the Supreme Court has heard this case before. In 2013, the court issued a decision but sent the case back to lower courts to be reviewed under a tougher constitutional standard. And the question today is, does the use of racial preferences in undergraduate admissions violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and how will the court rule this time? Joining us in studio to discuss this is Amy Wax. She is the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And joining us by phone is Neil Siegel. He is David W. Ickle Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science, co-director of the Program in Public Law, and director of the D.C. Summer Institute on Law and Public Policy at the Duke University School of Law. Amy, Neil, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Neil, let's jump right into the facts. What are the facts in the Fisher case, and what is the central constitutional issue? Well, the basic uh, facts uh, uh, involve an individual uh, who applied, uh, Ms. Fisher, who applied uh, for admission. Uh, she did not graduate in the top 10% of her high school class, and so she wasn't guaranteed automatic Admission, admission under what's called the Texas Top 10% Plan, where the top 10% of graduates are guaranteed admission. Uh, that is a formerly race-neutral policy, uh, but there's uh, quite a bit of evidence that uh, it was enacted with the race-conscious purpose of expanding uh, opportunities for racial and ethnic minorities to attend the University of Texas at Austin. That part of the policy is not at issue. Uh, instead, uh, Ms. Fisher, when she was denied admission under the Texas Top 10% Plan, applied for the remaining 20% uh, of the seats in the entering class uh, that uh, um, uh, admission seats are determined by what the university calls holistic review, which looks at a variety of different factors, including race. And it's, she was denied admission under that part of the program as well. And she's arguing that the use of race is one of several diversity factors in determining admission at UT Austin violates the constitutional quality clause of the Constitution, as you say, the, the Equal Protection Clause. Great. Thank you so much for that summary. Uh, Amy, anything to add or amplify? Well, um, I, I do want to point out a few things here about this case. I, I would describe this case as, in many ways, a kind of quirky case. Uh, and maybe perhaps not the ideal vehicle for the court to be considering affirmative action once again. It's done so many times, of course. Uh, the 20% of seats that are not covered by this 10% set-aside that Texas has uh, enacted um, really in the wake of a lot of controversy about their affirmative action admissions in the past, uh, the 20% of seats has shrunk each year uh, that this 10% plan has been in effect, uh, and now fewer and fewer seats are available uh, to be passed out on a discretionary basis. Uh, so we're really talking about a very tiny number of places at the university that are up for grabs here and that are being 
uh, handed out really on a race conscious basis. In fact, most of the people who are admitted in that group are white. A vast majority are. Um, so we're really looking at a plan that has at most kind of an incremental effect on the population of blacks uh, in the university, very small effect. Uh, and I think that really is going to color the case quite a bit uh, and and perhaps not uh, allow this decision uh, to have much purchase for the question of affirmative action overall. Great. Uh, well, Neil, why has the university adopted this plan and how does it justify it constitutionally? In, in, in the Grutter case, the uh, 2003, the, the Supreme Court recognized three benefits of diversity, increased perspectives, professionalism, civic engagement. Uh, in the last round of Fisher, the court said diversity improves the educational environment for all students. Why has the university adopted this 20% add-on, and uh, how is that justified constitutionally? Yeah, well, I think the, the basic justification for the program uh, is similar uh, to how you uh, to how you put it, they're they're trying to, um, in their own, uh, in their own words, um, uh, achieve uh, the educational uh, benefits of a diverse student body, uh, including a racially and ethnically diverse student body. Um, and the percent plan uh, is an important uh, component of that. In their judgment, uh, it 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 produces uh, a non-trivial amount of racial and ethnic diversity at the university. Uh, the other component is actually um, uh, uh, the, the 20% is modeled on what the court approved in the Grutter case, the Michigan Affirmative Action case in 2003, where the race is used as one of several uh, diversity factors, and as Professor Wax says, has a, a modest um, uh, effect on, in, on increasing uh, racial and ethnic minority enrollment. And uh, the university argues that, uh, that adding that component, I think of the plan as a layer cake, in which you've got the 10% plan as the first layer and then the 20, and then the race is a factor. The Grutter, uh, the Grutter uh, model is, is layered on top of that. They say it's a way to um, uh, uh, expand uh, uh, diversity along several dimensions that is not captured by the 10% plan. All the 10% plan does measure is whether you graduated in the top 10% of your class not whether you're a musician, whether you're an athlete, whether you took extraordinarily challenging courses, whether you had the experience of being uh, a minority uh, in a school that's not disproportionately populated by other minorities, uh, but um, being a majority, uh, um, uh, uh, being, a, being a minority in a majority uh, white school. So there's a variety of different dimensions of diversity that the 10% that the, the plan doesn't capture that they're trying to capture with what, what I'm calling the second, the second layer of the cake. Great. Many thanks for that. Amy, the petitioners say that the university's rationale had shifted, that previously the university said it had an interest in demographic parity and classroom diversity, but at this stage in the case, the new rationale is intra-racial diversity. What is the difference between those rationales, and do you agree that the, that is constitutionally significant? Well, um, their their rationale has shifted quite a bit in, in the face of the facts here, and I think it is worth, in answering your question, backing up a little bit and giving more of the facts. 
um, the 10% plan of admitting top 10% of the high schools actually accounts for most of the diversity at the University of Texas, uh, including blacks. And, and I, I think we have to be quite frank here that the focus here in this case, as in many of these cases, is on getting a critical mass or what they term a critical mass of black students because many of the other students from different groups in Texas and in other states uh, they very often don't need affirmative action. They're just naturally going to be a part of the picture in these universities. And the reason that uh, affirmative action is, is deemed necessary for blacks is that there is this sizable gap in measures of academic achievement between whites and blacks. But the 10 percent plan has the virtue of uh, of taking students from a wide variety of schools, wide variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, and also, quite frankly, the schools uh, display different levels of academic achievement even at the top of their class. So they are getting SES socioeconomic diversity through that. They're getting some ethnic diversity because the Hispanic population is so large in Texas. They're getting a number of those because blacks are tend to be segregated in certain high schools. They're getting a certain number of blacks. There A lot of, of diversity is being achieved through the 10% plan already. So the only diversity that they're really asking for here is the piece that is race conscious as part of this holistic increment of the 20% and shrinking that they're taking uh, on this kind of uh, holistic assessment that, that they are doing. Um, the, initially, they said, well, the reason we need to be race conscious as part of that holistic assessment, and nobody's challenging the holistic piece as such, they're only challenging the use of race in the holistic piece, uh, is that although we have a fair number of blacks at Texas already, although not as many as we'd like, uh, what we don't have is diversity within uh, departments, diversity within classes, because blacks tend to gravitate to certain majors and not others. Uh, part of it is a problem of the hard sciences. Uh, blacks tend to lag in uh, the, the sort of uh, test scores needed to enter those fields, so they tend to uh, not populate those fields. They were looking within the box of Texas and seeing that uh, there was a kind of lumpiness to the diversity. They would like to see a little bit more diversity spread out. Uh, they retreated from that, I think in part, and I'm guessing here, uh, because in fact, they would need a lot more aggressive affirmative action than this 20% plan would give them in order to solve that problem. There's, so, there's such a gap uh, in the credentials between blacks and whites that uh, they would need to be far more aggressive than they are even willing to be. So they retreated to a rationale that they wanted to get more diversity along the lines of minority students from a range of socioeconomic backgrounds. And they specifically focused, interestingly enough, on comparing the kid from the other side of the tracks, the sort of ghetto community who might go to a all-black high school and be in the top 10% of a kind of disadvantaged uh, young person versus, let's say, the son or daughter of two doctors in Dallas, a black student whose parents were professionals, and that student maybe would go to a much better high school. They wouldn't make the cut of the top 10% of their class, but in many ways they'd be better qualified than some of the kids from the ghetto school, and they would represent a certain segment of the black community that otherwise would not, you know, the experience of being a young black 
child of professionals that would otherwise not show up in the school. So they were trying to sort of get a more representative and perhaps better qualified range of minority students by using this add-on program. And that seems to be the focus now of their rationale. Um, That's, uh, thank you very much for that. Neil, I'm interested in your response. Amy says the school initially focused on getting diversity within each classroom, but is now shifted to focusing on getting minority students from majority white schools on the, on the grounds that they would bring a different perspective. Do you agree? And how does that in, intra-racial diversity rationale square with Supreme Court precedents? What are the justices likely to make of it? Right. So, I mean, the first thing I would, I would say is, is that it's, it's not really just African-Americans, uh, and, and how affirmative action is practiced in admissions really depends upon, um, uh, it, it may depend upon um, uh, where you are in the country and what kind of diversity is being produced without any kind of affirmative action. So in Texas in particular, it's African-Americans, it's, it's uh, Latinos, as well as a large Latino uh, population in, in the state. Uh, in other parts of the country, it, it may be um, uh, Native Americans as well. Uh, it can be Asian Americans, depending upon uh, depending upon the school. So it's really not just about um, 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 uh, enhancing uh, admissions for for African Americans. I, I, you know, I, I don't see um, um, I don't see as much of a shift uh, over time uh, in how and uh, how it's being uh, defended. I don't think uh, UT. I never understood them to be arguing that they need diversity classroom by classroom. I, I see that as more of a, an uncharitable portrayal uh, because I think that would require um, um, uh, uses, uh, 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 a magnitude of use of race and ethnicity admissions that the court has made clear uh, would be unconstitutional. Um, and so uh, I think they stood clear of that, but, but I think they are put in a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation that if you use race too much, it's unconstitutional, and now you're using race too little, uh, and it's unconstitutional. And what I understand the university to be saying is that this idea of securing the educational benefits of diversity is not something uh, that we're prepared to quantify. Um, uh, quantifying it is, is, the court has said, is unconstitutional. Um, but we could look at various measures about cross-racial interaction in the classroom, outside the classroom, um, and could we be doing better then we have been doing better in that regard. And I think that's, that's one consideration that they um, uh, have cared about throughout the litigation. I also think um, uh, concerns about the, you know, I, I, it seems to me it's hard to, to defend pedagogically just having your admission to college turn um, um, on uh, um, whether you graduate in the top 10% of your high school class and nothing else matters. Um, now it's state law, the university has no choice uh, 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 it, uh, but but, but the, the, the 20% is trying to compensate for that and look at a broader range of qualifications uh, and a broader range of diversity, including uh, within different racial and ethnic groups. Now, you can, again, you can portray what they're doing uncharitably, saying they're just stereotyping African-Americans in ghetto schools, but that, you know, that's certainly not language that the university or counsel for the university would, would use, and I don't think that's what their intention is either. I think what they're trying to do, which is what Supreme Court precedent counsels, is to overcome stereotypes about the way black people are or the backgrounds they come from or how they think or the way Latinos are. Um, and I think greater 
socioeconomic diversity, greater academic diversity, greater diversity of previous experiences within ethnic groups, within racial groups, can help a, a university to accomplish that. Amy, Neil has suggested your characterization of the rationale was uncharitable. What is your response? And do you think that the rationale of interracial diversity, as Neil has articulated it, um, is, is consistent with existing Supreme Court precedents? Well, I think the best way to answer that is to sort of take a step back and think about this whole rationale of diversity and how that fits into uh, the constitutional framework that we have for equal protection. I mean, if you go back in time and ask yourself, well, where did this diversity stuff come from? Uh, you know, it all goes back to the Bakke case. Uh, which is a case that involved the University of California at Davis Medical School and a white uh, applicant who felt discriminated against because they did have quite an aggressive affirmative action program there, uh, being state action affected by the Equal Protection Clause. And the justices really were in disarray as to you know whether affirmative action was acceptable and why. And Justice Lewis Powell kind of cut through all of his disagreement by coming up with this idea uh, that pedagogical, uh, that legitimate pedagogical interests dictated that there be a certain degree of diversity uh, within schools. He was talking about medical schools, and in part to sort of serve uh, various communities. That this was a good thing. Uh, that we ought to defer to some extent to educational administrators. Uh, on their judgment that this was important, that, that this could somehow overcome the test for use of race under the Equal Protection Clause, which, after all, said there had to be a compelling interest. So this this in itself was, was I think, noteworthy that uh, Justice Powell suggested that diversity was some kind of compelling interest uh, for educational institutions. This was carried forward in the Grutter case. But I think now uh, with the Fisher case, the, the holes, the, the defects, uh, the shortcomings of that whole theory are, are now coming home to roost for us in, in very big ways. Uh, here we are in a situation where uh, the party here, University of Texas, that's using race has to demonstrate that there's a compelling interest for using race, and that standard has not changed. Uh, and how do you do that for diversity in education? Uh, first of all, what are the benefits, concretely, that one is expecting from diversity? Uh, how do you measure them? What degree is enough? What degree of diversity uh, would bring those benefits? When do you stop? How much can you—I mean, the, the questions here are endless, and the answers are uh, in very, very short supply. There's, there's very little research on this that is at all dependable. So what it boils down to is that we kind of have to give— Educrats, administrators, uh, the benefit of the doubt, uh, we have to listen to what they say and we have to take it at face value. Well, that's precisely what Justice Kennedy said in the last iteration of Fisher uh, that we shouldn't be doing. But he didn't really give us an alternative. So I think there's just more questions uh, than answers here. Let me make one more point, which is that I think if you're going to, to uh, assess uh, the so-called benefits of diversity that are going to justify the use of race in admitting students, uh, and and we're going to conclude that they 
represent a compelling interest, that it's incumbent upon us not to look just at the benefits of diversity, but also at the shortcomings, at the drawbacks, and at the costs. And there are quite a few, and the evidence of them has been accumulating. And something that the court hasn't really confronted is that it's going to have to do not just to focus on benefits, but a cost-benefit analysis in seeing whether diversity uh, satisfies this compelling interest. Uh, very interesting. Neil, um, uh, Amy says there's not good evidence for the benefits of interracial diversity. The petitioners echo that in arguing that the Fifth Circuit had to conduct Internet research uh, and, and that that was inappropriate. And more broadly, she said there are costs. And I want to ask you both, but Neil uh, first, about a very interesting article by Adam Liptak yesterday in the New York Times. Student protests may play some role in Supreme Court case on race and admissions. Adam Liptak says that the uh, protests at campuses across the country about racial injustice might alter the legal dynamic. And he quotes Professor Michael Dorff, a former clerk for Justice Kennedy, saying that promoting educational diversity, the only justification for race-conscious admissions policies permitted by Justice Powell, has narrowed the range of options. Here's Professor Dorff. If you think that student protesters are insisting on a kind of political correctness and capitulation of authorities to their demands, you might think this just shows affirmative action does not promote intellectual diversity in the way Justice Powell thought. Uh, he goes on to say that pushing all of this into the framework of viewpoint diversity robs affirmative action of much of its moral force, which is a way of addressing our troubled racial past. So that question, do you agree with Adam Liptak that this debate about the costs of affirmative action on campus may influence the justices and might have some constitutional salience? Well, uh, um, great. I mean, this is a great question. Uh, and it's something I've thought a lot about. I should confess that Michael Dorff is a friend and he's got a, uh, a piece he did for a uh, verdict online uh, that I helped him out with in which he talked about different ways of reading the protests. And um, uh, you know, something else Michael said, not in that New York Times article, but in his own post, uh, is that, uh, you know, uh, the more hopeful or fairer reading of the protest, if you look beyond particular instances of uh, very unfortunate behavior, um, uh, 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 is uh, a failure not of diversity, but the failure of campus administrators, faculty, and students uh, to follow through on promoting diversity beyond the admissions process. And so, um, uh, it seems to me if, um, uh, uh, there are different ways of looking at these protests. Um, and uh, to me, um, uh, I, uh, I, don't, I don't entirely agree with either side. I see um, some instances of very bad behavior and, and threats to constitutional values that, that I care about, um, uh, particularly when, um, when we start talking about speech and, and speech suppression, uh, as well as just unkind behavior uh, to, uh, to other people. But at the same time, what, 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 what's coming through across the nation and different campuses uh, is minority students explaining their sense of alienation, isolation, people questioning whether they really belong there. Uh, and that, to me, is not a failure of uh, diversity. Uh, it's a call to arms uh, to do better in that regard and that this would be, um, um, you know, a, 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 um, really a, a um, a tragically wrong time to say that the the answer is to simply um, end affirmative action and um, um, just remove uh, significant numbers of racial and ethnic minorities from from elite campuses. As far as what what the court is going to do, I mean, I think it's fair to say that eight justices are. I can tell you what they're going to do. I mean, the, the interesting question is 
how Anthony Kennedy, the pivotal justice, is going to reason about affirmative action in light of what he said in past cases and in light of what's going on now. Uh, and so in a 2007 decision, uh, he said that the nation's schools strive to teach that our strength comes from people of different races, creeds, and cultures uniting a commitment to the freedom of all. And in order for that to happen, um, people of different races, creeds, and cultures uh, have to be together on one campus. And I think that's uh, um, really what uh, affirmative action, when it's practiced appropriately well, uh, is striving to achieve and that it's more than just uh, what happens at admissions that is required in order for those kinds of benefits to be uh, to be realized. Um, and so I think Justice Kennedy gets that. But at the same time, uh, I think he's been focused for quite some time on not just the benefits, but the costs of affirmative action and the kind of uh, interracial resentment or hostility uh, that it can generate uh, in, in, in uh, disappointed white applicants like uh, like the, uh, the the plaintiff uh, the, the plaintiff in this case and other potential harms as well uh, feelings of um, 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 entitlement or uh, or victimization uh, I, I don't think those are um, uh, what universities should be should be teaching students um, so uh, I think he sees both sides and has struggled with uh, with both sides, um, and um, whether or not what's going on in the campuses around the country uh, should make a difference, that's an interesting question about the appropriate uh, uh, sources of, of constitutional authority in deciding a case, whether they, I think they're going to have an effect on him. I, my, my prediction is that they would, and, 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 and what kind of effect it has really depends upon uh, what he sees in protests that can be interpreted in different ways. Amy, do you think that the protests will have an effect on Justice Kennedy? Uh, also quoted in Adam Libtak's article is Professor Richard Lempert at the University of Michigan, who filed a brief supporting the University of Texas. He says, I cannot help but think that even a subconscious link in Kennedy's mind between blacks on campus and the suppression of speech, justified or not, and I do not think it is justified, will hurt UT. Do you agree and, and do you agree or disagree with Neil that to the degree that African-Americans on campus are feeling alienated uh, the solution is not to retreat from affirmative action, but to embrace it. Right. Well, let me just say in answering this question, uh, just to make up front a, a really important distinction here, because I think that does affect our answer. And that is between what I term forced diversity, that is uh, engineered, socially engineered affirmative action that seeks outside neutral criteria or channels to, to uh, increase the number of minorities through some kind of race-conscious type program, so it enhanced the number of minorities that would ordinarily result, and what I would call spontaneous diversity, which is that, you know, just given the ordinary neutral criteria for admission, we are going to see a fair amount of diversity of different groups on campus, and we are going to be confronting the fact that we will have a kind of multicultural campus uh, that we are going to have to deal with. Uh, so that's very important. Um, so not all, and not all, I think, of the tension, the conflict, uh, you know, a lot of the, the sort of intergroup uh, struggle that's going on on campus right now can be chalked up to affirmative action. I mean, some of it is just the result of people from very different backgrounds and groups going to school together, and that's just something that's part of our national landscape that we're going to have to deal with. Um, however, to the extent that affirmative action is important and has certainly increased the number of blacks on campus, and they have been the focus mostly uh, of these protests, they have been the sort of spearheading a lot of uh, these protests, then affirmative action certainly is linked 
uh, and will be linked in the minds of the justices to what is happening. And of course, uh, absolutely, Kennedy is the linchpin here. He is the swing vote. He is the person, the justice, uh, that uh, whose vote is absolutely necessary for continuing this practice and certainly uh, for allowing Texas to continue the practice. Um, I, I will make two points that I think uh, uh, have already been made in part. One is, Absolutely, it is an unfortunate fact that uh, the black students' efforts on campus have now become linked to a kind of demand for orthodoxy and a shutting down of debate, uh, a, uh, a sort of anti-First Amendment free speech point of view. And I think that that is very concerning because it does seem to run contrary to the high hopes for the pedagogical hopes for a more diverse set of opinions, more robust debate, uh, sort of open minds, learning from each other, and all of those uh, wonderful pedagogical goals that, that everybody had in mind as an ideal. Those ideals have not really uh, been realized quite the opposite, and uh, that's a little disturbing. The second is that Justice Kennedy, I think, is very concerned with decorum and courtesy uh, and you know proper behavior, uh, harmony. He, he really uh, is, is quite averse to the thought of, of intergroup rivalry and a kind of balkanization of national life. Uh, and to the extent that he sees that happening on campus, and perhaps in part as a result of affirmative action, uh, he, that is also, I think, going to be a negative, definitely a negative uh, in his mind. Um, I just want to say one more thing about the possible connection between uh, the the hubbub on campus right now and and affirmative action and this is just by way of pure speculation now but I think there is something to it um, the insecurity the lack of safety the anxiety uh, the negative sort of emotions that are coming out of uh, the students at these elite universities and in particular the minority students really I think in part do proceed from the tensions and the stresses that affirmative action are, is imposing on these students. I mean, you have to realize that affirmative action puts a huge thumb on the scale for the admission of black students to many of these elite universities. There is a unfortunate fact of national life, which is that there are sizable gaps in the scores and aptitude indicators for black and white and Asian students uh, and the students that are admitted to many of these very competitive colleges uh, are really at the top of their game. Uh, and black students, many of the black students admitted, do not come in with the same scores and credentials as the white students. You're asking these students to compete. Now, if you can imagine, you know, being in a high-level math class with a math SAT of 670, which is a very good score, but you're competing with people who uniformly have 800s, and that is the case in some of these places like Yale and Harvard and MIT, uh, you know, these students are outstandingly qualified, that is one tough uphill battle. And I think that a lot of the minority students are now feeling uh, the downsides of being admitted uh, without perhaps the preparation and the background that would make life a lot easier for them. Neil, I wonder if you could respond to Amy's uh, interesting point. She's made a bunch, and uh, they include her latest claim that uh, if there's alienation on campus, it's the wages of affirmative action. And she says that may have constitutional significance because the whole point of 
Bakke and Grutter was that affirmative action would lead to increased perspectives and improve debate uh, sort of with a First Amendment rationale and to the degree that it's leading to the opposite to calls to stop debate, then that may call it that that may be hard to square with the, uh, Justice Powell's rationale. Yeah, well, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves uh, whether the answer is um, uh, the answer is and affirmative action um, uh, and having a non-trivial uh, number of uh, certain racial and ethnic minorities, uh, particularly on elite campuses. Um, and that's really uh, the best way to deal with the situation um, uh, when uh, what you have is uh, there's so much more, uh, uh, there's so many more people who want to go to these schools uh, than there are seats in the class. And there are so many more people who can do the work uh, and do well and graduate and go off to good careers and be more likely to be in leadership positions in the military, in business, in government, in the academy by virtue of having gone to these elite institutions. Um, and so, you know, uh, my experience has been, um, and I spent a lot of time on my own campus at Duke uh, listening uh, to people. And, and uh, something that I keep coming back to is just the extent to which still in 2015 in America, um, uh, people can view the world very differently uh, depending upon um, the, the shoes in which uh, they're standing and their own racial and ethnic background. So, what I hear from my own students of color, and I teach undergraduates and I teach law students, is is not the difficulties and the stress of competing and their grades. Um, it's uh, the looks, the stares, um, uh, uh, the condescending questions, um, or even that statement from classmates about, you know why you're here, right? Uh, at Duke, we had an incident in which someone hung a noose from a tree last spring. Um, more recently, uh, a Black Lives Matter poster uh, was the face with feces. You know, I, I, I don't think those are the wages of affirmative action, and I don't think that's uh, that that's about uh, black students or, or other minorities feeling like they just they just can't compete. Um, um, I understand the point that uh, if, if 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 you're going to use some form of race as a plus factor in admissions, um, those kinds of questions can arise. I under um, I understand that. Um, uh, uh, when we're talking about um, um, uh, uh, other white students and how they think about their classmates and even minority students, how you know some, some questions they may ask themselves. Um, is that a cost of affirmative action? Yes, it is. But also, uh, I would encourage us to think about uh, and really take in the dramatic costs of, uh, of ending the practice. Now, I should say, I, I don't think it's likely that in the Fisher case, the court is going to decide to simply end affirmative action. I agree with Professor Wax that um, it's 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 somewhat mystifying that they took the case. It's an idiosyncratic program. Usually, the court grants cases to decide circuit splits that couldn't possibly be a split of authority among different courts because this program is, as far as I can tell, unique. Um, so they could um, uphold the program. They could strike it down narrowly, uh, just based upon the, the the particularities of this this program. But I do think uh, what the court says. Uh, may very well, how broadly they decide the case may very well have uh, significant implications for uh, campuses uh, around around the country. And that's why I think it's appropriate to, to think about not just the Fisher case, but, but the constitutionality of affirmative action more generally. And that's why some of my comments are directed at that broader question. Great. Uh, Amy, uh, any response to Neil's uh, suggestion that at a time when 
African Americans are feeling most alienated, the right response is not to cut back on affirmative action, but to uh, embrace it. And I also want to ask you about your recent article on not dreaming of affirmative action. Uh, I think it was in the uh, Penn Journal of Constitutional Law, a great partner of the National Constitution Center. You said even if the court does strike down affirmative action, it will continue. The reason is that law doesn't matter much at this point. Individuals who wield power in universities unequivocally favor the idea of student diversity because those diversity advocates have the means to make it happen. Racial affirmative action will be a significant part of the landscape regardless of what the court does. Yeah, but let me take the last part first, and then I will go back to, uh, you know, the right way to move is towards more affirmative action rather than less affirmative action. Uh, When I say that, that, you know, the law at the end of the day doesn't matter much, there's a very important distinction here that is rarely made, but really we should not lose sight of, which is that all the affirmative action cases up till now, educational affirmative action cases, have concerned state schools, that is, schools that are an arm of the government. And the Equal Protection Clause, you know, just governs their conduct. The Equal Protection Clause does not prevent private institutions from discriminating on the, believe it or not, on the basis of race. Now, of course, the federal government has a very long tentacles into some of these private institutions, so that might be the basis for uh, trying to deal with that, but but the court hasn't gone there yet. The court has dealt with state schools. State schools are only part of the landscape here. Uh, you know, it is an open question uh, how much leeway places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton have to have very robust and aggressive affirmative action programs, perfectly consistent with law, regardless of what happens in Fisher. And I think those elite institutions, let's just even put aside uh, public flagship universities, although I think the the people there are also going to find ways around it, um, they're going to do what they want to do. And what they want to do is they want to have affirmative action. They want to have uh, minority faces on campus, the, the white constituencies there and the Asians and the people who go there uh, like to think that that's the way their university is going to be. The alumni want it that way. The administrators want it that way. All the constituencies want it that way, except for a few people who are grumbling about it and are second-guessing it. So I honestly think that the impact of this case is, is not going to be as great as some people think it will be one way or the other. Now, the question of, you know, what do we do about uh, this kind of convulsion on campus and this horrible feelings of alienation that these minority students have, the first thing I want to say is that even though students may not overtly complain about their academic difficulties, I think they're very much in the background uh, for them personally, and the, the broader picture is hidden from them. Uh, they are not privy to some of the grimmer statistics about how black students do at high-powered universities, where they fall in the class, what majors they have, the credentials that they come out with. For example, there's a study at Duke that was recently done after they managed to extract the data from Duke University that showed that almost 60% of black men who start out in the hard sciences as undergraduates drop out of the hard sciences, whereas only 8% of white men who start out in a hard sciences drop out. So uh, there are a lot of, of, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, academically that people don't want to talk about. Uh, and we see it even more in law schools and med schools. 
Uh, it, is, it is quite rare in my law school, I don't know if I've ever seen it actually, for a black person to graduate in the top half of the class, believe it or not. Uh, and these are not the kinds of numbers you know, that anybody really wants to hear about or that most people are aware of. So these difficulties are there. Now, in terms of whether we should just forget about affirmative action, well, it's not like it hasn't been done. Nine states have passed laws saying that public institutions, including universities, cannot practice affirmative action. Uh, at the University of Texas, believe it or not, given all the different programs they've tried since the early 90s up until the present, the percentage of black students at their flagship has remained pretty much constant at around 4%. It really hasn't varied that much, and the total number of percentage of blacks in the state is about 13%. So we really do not have the full representation from the population, and the reasons for that, of course, go are, are completely external to university admissions. They have to do with problems that start very young within families, within schools, sizable gaps in achievement, in, in numbers, in test scores. Uh, these are the problems that we really should be confronting. These are the sources of the need for affirmative action. And 25 years of affirmative action has done nothing to reduce the need for affirmative action. I will repeat that. 25 years of affirmative action has done nothing to reduce the need for affirmative action. So it would not be a catastrophe if we got rid of affirmative action, some states have already done it. California's done it to good effect. There would be fewer minority students on the elite campuses, but in fact, there would be a cascade effect, and those students would be going to other schools that now struggle to find enough blacks who can even get through school because, frankly, the problem is we're rearranging the chairs on the deck and there aren't enough chairs. Uh, wow. Well, a bunch of provocative points. Uh, a response from Neil would be great. Amy uh, summed up her argument by saying 25 years of affirmative action has not ended the need for affirmative action, sort of referencing Justice O'Connor's argument in Grutter that there would be no more need for affirmative action or her hope that the, that the need would end in 25 years. And then Amy says it would not be a catastrophe if we ended affirmative action. Neil, what is your response? Well, you know, when, if you think about uh, what, is, what is required to overcome the social dislocations of race right, in this country, uh, race relations are our most enduring domestic crisis. That's um, what one of my law professors, Paul Mishkin, who represented the University of California, the Baki uh, case, taught me. Uh, when you think about uh, centuries of slavery and then the Black Codes and, and Jim Crow and segregation, uh, and then rampant racial discrimination, um, uh, that uh, what is required to overcome this? I don't think anyone sensible would say, really, all you need or primarily need is affirmative action. Uh, it's always been a multifaceted approach. Um, uh, to say um, uh, uh, that uh, uh, we're just going to end affirmative action, it wouldn't be a catastrophe, strikes me uh, as a counsel. Uh, as a council of despair. Of course, it starts early in life. And of course, there should be much more uh, support um, uh, in terms of schooling, in terms of um, um, helping uh, parents to raise, uh, to raise children who are in an environment in which they can succeed in school. Um, uh, and and um, so that, that's easy enough to say. Um, um, there's often not enough political support 
to do the sort of things that that might be that might be required. But it's always been a, a both and approach: uh, affirmative action plus a variety of other things. Uh, there have been uh, many many uh, people who have benefited from affirmative action who's ha- who have had opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have had, including uh, at least two justices on the U.S. Uh, uh, Supreme Court. Um, and so to say that it's really um, it's really accomplished little uh, it seems to me to be uh, uh, not uh, not uh, uh, not indicated by uh, by our experience. Uh, it has costs, but it also uh, it also has uh, it also has uh, benefits. And again, I want to. Um, uh, it seems to me that the consequences at elite campuses would be devastating uh, if affirmative action were simply ended. And uh, by a fir- and and all I guess and and there weren't other other ways to try and deal with the fallout. And so uh, in some places that end affirmative action, I think Professor Wax is right. There's de facto affirmative action. In other places that have you know why was this percent plan uh, crafted? It was it was uh, it was a way to try and practice affirmative action uh, in a way that the courts would uphold because it's formally facially race neutral, even though it has a race conscious purpose and racially identifiable effects. And the courts have said that's not as problematic as using race as a plus factor that the courts have said is it qualifies as an individual racial classification. So you have uh, different forms of race consciousness that are trying to achieve much the same, uh, much the same objective. And um, uh, getting rid of affirmative action, uh, what that exactly means depend, depends upon just how much race consciousness uh, that courts and 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 uh, legal uh, legal advocates who want to end uh, affirmative action, just how much race consciousness they want uh, to take away from the discretion of universities. And if the universities, and I think Professor Wax is right, uh, they feel a compelling need in terms of their pedagogical mission, uh, in terms of their legitimacy, in terms of the role they play in American society in producing leaders, uh, why they feel this compelling need. Uh, not to be de facto resegregated, not to be lily white and Asian uh, in terms of the, 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 the demographic population of the students. Uh, it seems to me we ought to be uh, we ought to be playing paying close attention and listening to them uh, why why they feel that need. And I think if we do that, uh, the conclusion we'll reach is uh, not to do more affirmative action. Uh, that wasn't what I was suggesting, uh, but that uh, this is not a time uh, to begin. Uh, cutting back on it, letting let alone uh, ending the practice in its entirety. Great. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating debate. At times, it sounded as much like a policy debate as a constitutional debate, despite our focus on the Constitution. But that's because the standards that the Supreme Court itself has articulated require debaters and litigants to make a case for the educational value of affirmative action. So, Amy, you uh, have the first closing argument, and I'd like you to Tell our listeners why you believe that affirmative action violates the Constitution. Well, uh, there's really two separate parts to that. One is how should the Fisher case come out, given the facts of the Fisher case? Uh, And the second is, you know, does affirmative action as a general matter violate the Constitution? Uh, And in the first case, I think uh, if I were voting on Fisher, I would probably uh, strike down the affirmative action piece of the University of Texas admission plan uh, because I just think, uh, once again, keeping our eye on this compelling state interest 
standard that the extra little increment that the University of Texas is identifying this, this interest in getting maybe more blacks of one kind versus another kind uh, is really too trifling and, and I think uh, not substantial enough, also uh, without significant or sufficient evidence of its benefits, uh, to really measure up under a compelling interest standard. I think this ties into uh, the, the softness and, and the... Uh, the kind of uh, the problematic nature of this whole diversity rationale, uh, which is that at the end of the day, it really relies on the say-so of uh, people who are running the university system. We really have to accept their view of the matter. And I don't think there's any other area of constitutional adjudication of fundamental rights uh, where the say-so about benefits of diversity are enough uh, to overcome uh, any significant incursion into rights. And here there is an incursion because race-conscious action uh, is something that needs to be justified. We wouldn't accept diversity as a justification for compromising voting rights acts, or voting act uh, rights. We wouldn't accept it as a justification for, uh, for compromising marriage rights or the right to abortion. I don't know why uh, it should be acceptable here. Uh, so I really think that these universities need to do a much better job of justifying what they are doing. I think they're going to have a very hard time doing that because I don't think that the benefits of uh, incremental or socially engineered diversity uh, are really that great, and there are many, many drawbacks. The notion that uh, horrible things would happen if we, if we retreated from affirmative action uh, that this would be an intolerable situation. Uh, no, I, there's just no proof of that whatsoever. Uh, it's not that blacks wouldn't go to college. It's not that they wouldn't get an education. Uh, it's not that they wouldn't take their place in society. They would go to different institutions. They might go to institutions where they're better matched to the other students, and that would have a lot of positive benefits, some of which have been documented by social science, uh, that people do better when they're in an environment where other people are of the same ability. So none of that has been taken into account. Uh, so I really think it's it's very easy to be catastrophic about this, to call it resegregation, which I think is a misnomer because the word segregation means segregation by force, segregation by law, rather than segregation by neutral criteria. Um, I really want to say, uh, so I, I think that, that they could easily, I think Fisher could easily uh, go against the University of Texas uh, on the facts of the case and also on on the much broader principles uh, that uh, apply here. And I will really just say one more thing, and this is more conceptual, but I think it really much go very much goes to uh, the constitutional analysis. Affirmative action is really uh, premised on a fundamental conceptual and category mistake. The idea that uh, it is possible or desirable to confer upon people a position uh, or a situation or a privilege, such as going to a highly competitive uh, Ivy League school, that by very strong convention and understanding needs to be earned. 
And yes, we have to work to make sure that everybody has at least the minimal capacity to earn those privileges and those positions. And we've seen in our society that people who come from behind and don't have a lot of privilege going in are perfectly capable of doing that by dint of their own effort. Uh, but, but I think to sort of have double standards uh, for some people uh, rather than others, uh, that really goes against the whole spirit of uh, the notion of merit itself and, and what these institutions are for. And I think we have seen that uh, this affirmative action process has created uh, a lot of trouble and a lot of downside, much of which, of course, we're not willing to really confront or talk about. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Neil, last word to you. Uh, why do you believe that affirmative action, as practiced in the Fisher case, is consistent with the Constitution? Well, uh, the first thing I would say is, is uh, I don't think the case is going to turn on whether there's a compelling interest, because Justice Kennedy has committed himself uh, repeatedly, including in Fisher 1, uh, uh, to the idea that the court is prepared to give some deference to the university's claim uh, that uh, the use of race in admissions uh, is necessary uh, for it to to achieve its compelling interest uh, in the educational benefits of a diverse student body. I think uh, the case is going to turn on uh, narrow tailoring, uh, whether or not, uh, in particular, whether or not uh, the university exhausted available race-neutral alternatives uh, before it used uh, uh, the use of, of race as one of several factors in uh, filling out the remaining 20 percent of the class. And there, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I'm persuaded. Uh, I'm putting aside what I think. You know, the court is going to do what Justice Kennedy's going to do. But I'm, I'm persuaded that uh, that there are uh, enough problems with determining admissions just based upon where you are in your graduating class. Uh, that uh, considering a variety of other factors uh, and considering uh, race as as one of those factors um, can contribute uh, to a greater amount of diversity. Uh, than, than uh, not taking race into account with respect to the, the rest of the class. In terms of the, the issue of affirmative action more broadly, um, uh, I, I think I'll say two things. The first is that you know, Professor Wax has, has conceded and seems untroubled uh, uh, by the fact that uh, if you do do away with affirmative action, uh, except uh, maybe public universities like UT, maybe they can jerry-rig a system like a percent plan that is facially race neutral, but has a race conscious purpose and, and can produce a non-trivial member of, level of racial and ethnic diversity on campus. Private universities can't, uh, can't do that. Law schools can't do that. Uh, there's no racial segregation uh, out in, in the world or in, or in lower, lower schools that, 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 that their program could be parasitic on. So it, in other places, uh, ending affirmative action uh, could have uh, those devastating consequences. You're not going to have spontaneous diversity if you don't have uh, people of a variety of races and ethnicities there. Uh, and I think uh, those consequences are not all that matter, but they certainly ought to matter to the constitutional analysis. And if I could put this in broader perspective, uh, you have the 14th Amendment, which includes the Equal Protection Clause, being added to the Constitution in 1868 in the wake of the Civil War. And the primary purpose, the court said repeatedly in the ensuing decades of the 14th Amendment, was to make citizens of slaves. Uh, slavery was not race-blind or colorblind. It was a race-conscious institution. And the primary purpose of the 14th Amendment was to try and integrate within American society African Americans in particular. So this idea of a, a colorblind, race-blind constitution 
emerges much later. It emerges in decades of debates over brown and desegregation, over laws with a disparate impact on racial minorities, and then eventually over affirmative action. Uh, and uh, in a different world, one in which there hasn't been as much backlash to race-conscious efforts by government to overcome a very unfortunate past, we might be having a different debate about whether affirmative action is constitutionally required or merely permitted. Uh, we're having the 180-degree turn debate in which we're talking about whether it's permitted or whether it's prohibited by the Constitution. Uh, and that seems to me to be uh, quite, uh, uh, quite a radical uh, uh, move from what I understand to be the original animating purposes of the 14th Amendment. And to put the point differently and more bluntly, uh, it's hard to find a race case before the Supreme Court in which you have a minority plaintiff bringing a claim that the Supreme Court is prepared to vindicate. In case after case, it's white plaintiffs invoking the 14th Amendment uh, and the Supreme Court taking their claims very seriously uh, and at least some of the time, actually most of the time, uh, vindicating, uh, vindicating their complaint. Affirmative action in higher education has been the one exception, I think, to that trend. Uh, and I think it's an important exception because of the role of education uh, in, 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 um, uh, in, in, in allowing people to forge a better future for themselves uh, and for, for, for American society. I see affirmative action in higher education when it's done well as playing a crucial nation-building role uh, in American society of making one society where there previously uh, there was two. Uh, and you need people of different races and ethnicities on campus in order to do that. I don't think it's enough to say, well, certain racial and ethnic minorities will go to other schools and we will be okay as a society as a result of that. Thank you so much, Neil Siegel and Amy Wax, for your eloquent contributions and for casting light on one of the most hotly contested constitutional issues of the year. Does the use of racial preferences violate the 14th Amendment? Thank you. Thanks so much. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across Independence Hall in Philadelphia. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com backslash panoply. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.